This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Identity in Me, or In Me for short. My guest for this episode is Dr. Sahoy Lee, a licensed psychologist and head of counseling services at Phillips Exeter Academy. She and I will have a conversation about her identity and the concept of identity development in general. Okay, I'm here with a person of great distinction, a person who's candid, caring, collected, and cool. She's a pleasure to work with on the regular, and I'm just so honored to have her on the podcast with me this evening. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Hello, Hadley. Thank you for reading the intro that I gave you to read. (laughs) That was straight off the dome. You did not write that up. That was straight from the heart, from the dome. And on the podcast, I am Stena, not Hadley. Okay, sorry. Should we start? Do you need to start over there? No, it's cool. It's a mistake that's made often, and it's part of the shtick now. So my audience knows that people are going to start with my given name, and then, you know, I tell them my stage name, which is my middle name, and then we kind of, you know, move on. Got it. And and we're going to be talking about this matter of names in this Mm -hmm. episode. We'll cover that um, at some point. But before we get to the questions, um, just to offer my audience a little background of uh, my relationship with Dr. Lee. Uh, I've been working at Phillips Exeter for four years now, and I met her here uh, in my capacity as Associate Dean of Multicultural Affairs. Uh, When I arrived at Phillips Exeter, I reached out to her about an idea I had, which was to enlist the student proctors in my office to be listeners. I wanted to partner with counseling services to teach them the art of listening and responding. So I reached out to Dr. Lee, who graciously accepted my offer to collaborate on this very important project. And um, she was an awesome teacher. Uh, The students enjoyed her and she had jewels for them in every workshop. And one of the things I remember her saying during a training was for students to resist handing Kleenex to their peers if they start to cry. I'm sitting there like, hold up, what? If somebody's crying, you don't give them Kleenex? Like, I need to listen. Maybe I should have been doing this training if she's saying this stuff to to people. But she got the letters behind her name, so there's a reason she's saying this, and I don't know it. And so I listened, and um, she reasoned that handing a person who's crying Kleenex is a subtle way of asking them to stop crying. And when I thought about that, it made a lot of sense. So till this day, I no longer hand people who are crying tissues. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. You want to make sure Kleenex is available and of within the person's visual field. You want to know it's there, but let it be their choice when they are ready or they would like to use a Kleenex. I, I think it's a, when people see emotions being expressed, sometimes it can be uncomfortable, especially if you weren't expecting it. The gesture of handing someone a Kleenex really is to feel like you're being helpful and maybe it's something to do when you're feeling uncomfortable. Then it's about you. And so if someone's expressing their emotions, just let them. And you learned that in your training. Yes, I did. For my audience, if you haven't picked it up yet, Dr. Lee is a psychologist and uh, she works here on campus and she's actually the head of that department here um, and has been in that role for two years, right? Okay. And another thing that uh, I have to give her a shout out on is like hiring. She's brought in some dope people. She has her eye on diversity. 
She wants to make sure that students see themselves when they walk into counseling services and that somebody's going to be able to, to relate and understand them. So you know, big ups for, for doing that. I, I know our students appreciate it, and I certainly do. And there's still a ways to go, but you've made tremendous strides in that area. Thank you. It is with a lot of effort, a lot of collaborative effort, your office included. Um, but I'm really proud to say that out of our department, five counselors, three are counselors of color, two are um, black counselors. Yeah. And um, the other dope part about that is that um, small world, I've, I intersect with both of them in re- weird ways. That's right. uh, one of them grew up in Roxbury and went to Brookline High. And, uh, you know, he was there long after I graduated. Um, And then the other one graduated in the same year of high school as I did, grew up in the Boston area. And so it's a lot easier being around on this campus in New Hampshire when there are familiar people uh, around. So thanks again. This podcast, Identity and Me, is about um, identity and how Um, life experiences shape identity and the interplay between identity and life experiences. And so I always start my guests with the question of how do you identify? At this time of my life, um, I identify as Taiwanese American. And did you always identify as Taiwanese American? No. Uh, And that's why I say at this time of my life. Um, So I was born and raised in Taiwan and I immigrated to the United States when I was 10 years old. I was an international student on a student visa for many, many, many years. Uh, so for the longest time, I, the label Asian American or Taiwanese American didn't seem like something that I could have because I didn't have a U.S. citizenship. Yep. Um, and so it's a very, as we know, and I'm sure audience in your podcast understands, a very socialized term, Right. And so I didn't feel like there's something I could take on. And then I got my citizenship. And I still wasn't ready to fully understand what that meant. And suddenly, after one hour of a ceremony, walk out saying, well, I'm now Taiwanese American. It took me a minute. Um, And how old were you when you became a citizen? I was, let me think, 35. Okay. And that is something I think folks need to understand about the immigration process in the United States. My family came, I was on international student visa. And as long as you're in a, you are um, on a school visa, and I just kept going to school, right? It was middle school, then it was um, high school, then it was college, then it was graduate school. So my visa just kept going. So I was on, I was on a student visa for a long time. Meanwhile, my family got US citizenship. Mm. But because I was over 18, I wasn't able to follow my family citizenship package, if you will. And I know I'm not using all the technical terms, Um, but but I think people don't understand that, you know, the path to citizenship can take a long time and people could be doing all the right things, paying taxes, getting their education, doing their thing and still feel like a perpetual foreigner. Yeah, yeah. I came at 10 and I didn't get my citizenship until I was 35. Got it. Okay. Now, when you arrived here, which state did you live in? I lived in Southern California. I went from Taipei, Taiwan to San Bernardino, California. What was it like living in San Bernardino, California versus 
where you left in Taiwan? Oh my gosh, so different. Um, where we lived in Taiwan, first of all, um, I am from, um, both sides of my family are all Taiwanese. And so, and we're in Taiwan, we were the majority. There was no, that that was our country. That was, I never had the idea of being a minority or majority, just people, because um, we all kind of, it's a very homogeneous country, at least at the time. It's much more diverse now, but um it was home. We lived in a big city. We lived in a high-rise building. Um, it was great. I, I have an extended family. My mother is the oldest of 10. My father is the fifth of 10. I grew up with cousins. We just, that was just home. Um, but I was, you know, I was the youngest and I was told we were going on, the, on a trip to go visit, you know, family because we had an uncle in, in, in Riverside County. And so, okay, we're on this vacation. And then I realized why am I in school? They're enrolled in school. Wow. So even when they got you in school, it was still like, yeah, vacation. Uh, until you figure this out, we're on vacation. Okay. I mean, right. So it was a shock. I didn't speak English. I did not know the alphabet. So I took, I had fourth grade in Taiwan. And because I didn't speak, I didn't know the alphabet, literally did not know the alphabet. They decided um, that I would take fourth grade again. Okay had fourth grade in Taiwan, fourth grade in the U.S. And in fourth grade, I always remember I would sit in the back and they would give me these little ditto sheets. You remember those? Like you write A, 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 B, B, B. Yeah, that's how I started in the back of the fourth grade classroom. Didn't understand what people were saying, but what I did understand loud and clear was that people were making fun of me. Um, I dressed different. My food... At lunch was different. I didn't speak English. I was the kid in the back of the classroom. And it's, let me, you know, kids can be mean. Fourth graders, man, they they can be mean. Um, and you don't need a language to understand when the energy coming toward you is one that is not positive and welcoming. And I remember I would cry. I would be upset going back, you know, and and, and this is perhaps too much to share, but we lived with my uncle probably the first three months that we landed um, to the States while my family was getting settled um, and set up. And I would just be upset. I would cry. I would go back. And I was like, people are making fun of me. They can't say my name. What was the composition of this community? So when we lived in with my uncle, it was predominantly white suburban area. Um, and that was kind of initially the, the school that I was exposed to. And then when we moved to San Bernardino, which is just the next town over, it was a much more diverse school system. It was predominantly Hispanic, um, Black, and Asian, uh, with my with whites being probably in the smaller group. Yeah. And I think that was a good transition for me. So when we first got to Riverside for that first three months, um, it was it was rough. That was when people made fun of me. I felt really othered. Didn't have the language for it because I was 10. Um, I thought I was on vacation. <laughs> Did somebody teach you the middle finger? Like, because, I mean, that's always an option. <laughs> yeah. I wish somebody did. Um, no, but anyway, so, I mean, and you you, you know the story, but uh, then my family decided that I would go by a different name because they were, they had enough of me being upset um, about people making fun of my name and not be able to say Sahoy. So I was 
kind of given uh, unofficially. It's not on my any of my documentations. Uh, uh, American name, and it was Cindy. So for the longest time, I got I, I went by Cindy Lee. Uh, if you interview my friends from middle school and high school and college, they would tell you, "Wow, a Cindy Lee." And do you remember what it felt like to be referred to as Cindy back in the day? Like, was it odd initially? Did you accept it willingly? I was relieved. It was a chance to not have to deal with it, deal with the difficulty folks had about my name, the looks, the how do you say it again? Um, I, I, I couldn't do it. It was too much. And so- am I, I'm sorry, am I missing something here? Sahoy. 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 Got it. It ain't that hard. Wow. And they couldn't say Sahoy. Like, that is crazy to me. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue, please. No, but thank you. And, and, and I have to say, and I'll give you kudos, you've always been one of those people that I met and made it your business to make sure you say my name correctly. So I appreciate that. Thank no you. problem. And then at some point you reclaimed your name, correct? Correct. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? It wasn't until I was in my early 20s and I started graduate school at the Ohio State University, go Bucks! if people are out listening, um, and I credit it to my mentor. My t- mentor, Dr. Thomas Parham, said a lot to me, and one of the things he said to me was, people are going to have to learn to say your name. And this conversation came about because I was starting to publish um, articles in professional journals. And very quickly, we realized I couldn't say Cindy Lee, like, you know, this article is by Cindy Lee because it's not a legal name. Yeah. Nobody would know who Cindy Lee is, you know, and my transcripts all along has been Sahoy. And so that prompted you, well, if you're going to start to write and if you're going to start to have your name out there, it's got to be your name, your, your, your given name. Um, and that's when, you know, Dr. Parham was very good about saying you were going to learn to say your name. Up until that point, I really felt any racial tensions or discrimination was more about me and a reflection of me. And then I learned it's not about me. It's more a reflection of them. Um, Their tolerance, their ignorance, their willingness, their patience or lack thereof. So it's been quite a journey. Great segue. It's almost like you were thinking with me. You're talking about at the time in graduate school, you were ready to reclaim your name for a variety of reasons, one of which was the mentor who empowered you and just the um, circumstances, right? Like, so if you're Cindy Lee and that's not your legal name, uh, then what? You were also in a place to start thinking differently about your racial and ethnic identity. I know that one of your clinical interests is identity development. So I'm wondering if you could explain identity development to someone who's hearing about that for the first time. The way I think about it is your sense of who you are and, and the sense of who you are in, in relation to those around you. I feel like my ethnic identity has been really interesting because my surroundings kept changing. So I go from being in my home country, Taiwan, and just being just being Taiwanese. You just don't think about it. You just be, Right to, well, the first three months was rough, right? In a predominantly white place and didn't speak English. And really it was a first entry and that was rough. And then landed in a place where everybody 
had a different language. I people were speaking Spanish around me, and different had people had different shades of skin around me. I I was I wasn't so different. Every, everybody had a different language. Everybody had an accent. Everybody had a so it wasn't really a thing in high school growing up, and then. In college, it was interesting because I went to a college that was predominantly Asian. Okay. Which is where? University of California, Irvine, which was 65% um, Asian identifying students at the time that I went. 65%, including graduate students. That's a high number. Extremely. And what I experienced there was my ethnic identity in relation to other Asians. Because there were so many of us, Asians started to, at least in my college, people divided by groups. The Chinese were here, the Koreans were over here, the Japanese were over here, the Taiwanese were over here, the right. And then I didn't belong either. Yeah. Because I wasn't Asian American. Like some of the cultural references folks had, I got here when I was 10. I really felt like, okay, I'm here now. I'm here in a, in a school where people kind of look similar, yet I still didn't feel like I belonged. So I think in the high school and is surrounded by the folks I was surrounded by, I felt seen ethnically, racially. I felt safe, connected. Um, folks of color kind of hung out. Everybody just kind of hung out. There was not a division. There was not a lot of tension. So I think my identity at the time that I focused more on was less about ethnic and racial identity, but was more my academic um, identity. High school was when I got into a peer counselor program at 15, um, very much like a student listeners program um, in where we work right now. And that was my first exposure to psychology and, and counseling in general. So I think that is what, because I felt safe in all other areas of kind of my identity, I really focus on exploring, um, again, now speaking English, now able to help folks and having some leadership positions. What is that about for me? Yep. And that's where my energy went into. Um, and it was kind of fun. It's not like you were gravitating towards other um, Taiwanese students or other students who identified as Asian. You just hung out with whoever. Yeah. Okay. I can't even tell you there was another uh, Taiwanese person. I can tell you there were a lot of Asians and yeah. there are Filipinos and there are Vietnamese and there's Koreans. Like we were, just, but we all just hung out in my high school. There wasn't a division. I mean, the divisions were probably your typical high school, like jocks and nerds and whatever. And I probably were more of the nerdy side. <laughs> I, you know, I was. I didn't play a sport. I wasn't a cheerleader. I, I, I was on my academic path. You don't give me a nerd vibe at all. I don't, I mean, I, I I never look at you and think, man, once upon a time, I'm sure she was a nerd. Nerd alert. No. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank definitely you. not. You know, interestingly, one of my experiences here at PEA that has been notable, I've had the pleasure of interviewing students for leadership opportunities for a variety of conferences. And when I interview Asian identifying students, there's this common theme that comes up of I never considered myself Asian. Like I just, I tried to fit in with white people. And then in the last year or at some point as they were older, they were othered and realized they 
don't fit in in the way that they thought they did. And it kept coming up over and over with Asian students in a way that wasn't happening with Black and Latinx students or other students of color. And there like each group has a certain set of issues, but I found that to be a common thread with Asian students. You're, you're shaking your head right now. Yeah, I, it was clear to me that I was not white. I My experiences told me very early on that I am not white. Um, and my first entry point to the U.S., as we talked about earlier, I think was was rough. And part of that was because I was so different. Um, there was never this idea, um, this awakening of like, oh, wow, I'm not white. Oh, I knew that very early on. <laughs> Um, so you're right. I hear that from students too. It's always interesting to me. And I, and I wonder if it's because the early childhood experiences of for, for those folks growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods. Now that I'm hearing from you about your, your past and your um, upbringing, um, some things make sense now. So I often talk about this vibe I get from people when I meet them and it's just like a welcoming, cool, like I'm not intimidated by you vibe. You're not brand new to me. And I can't really quantify that or put it in like actual terms for somebody who's not in my skin or for somebody who doesn't relate. Um, I often tell white folks like, yeah, I walk into a room. Sometimes I'm wrong, but more often than not, I can peg the person who's going to say some dumb shit to me. I like, you know, and when I say like, I could be wrong, some people have surprised me over the years. Um, but more often than not, it's like, yeah, that person over there is super uncomfortable and they don't even need to say a word for me to feel it. Um, and so like, I never really had that experience with you. And so now I get it. You came up in a very diverse community. And so diversity is not new to you. So it's like, okay, black dude with dreads. Hi, how are you? Keep it moving. You know? So one of the things you're touching on right now is, so it's not like this instantaneous thing that if you're a person of color that you identify with your racial or ethnic identity at a in a given period in your life, especially if you're in a diverse community. If you're in a diverse community, you feel safe, you feel heard, you're, that part of your identity isn't like a weight. So there are particular occurrences that make race or ethnicity more salient than not. Correct. Correct. And this is what we what we see in the places that we work. When you take a person of color out of their home safe net, if you will, and you bring them to, say, a predominantly white institution. That is stressful. Just the mere fact of that. And if we look at what research shows is that, right, people of color who are in predominantly white spaces carry a lot more stress because that part is now very salient. That part is now in their face every day, all the time. Let, I'm going to jump in with a quick thought. You know, race has been um, salient for me for a long time. Um, I lived in predominantly white communities and went to schools where I was the only black boy. I'm not going to tell those stories on this episode. I'm going to talk about my experience in college being one of 3% of black students walking into dining hall and getting my first meal like, what the is this? What is this? Like, and like going the next day and thinking maybe there was just a bad day. And it's just like, nah. And then by like the middle of week two, I'm like eating cocoa pebbles and cinnamon toast crunch and cereal regularly because I'm like, yo, this food is like making this experience 
really terrible. It's like it's already something to be in a super minority here, but I can't even eat something good. Yeah, for sure. We're going to kind of wrap up uh, with uh, two questions. Um, so I started mm-hmm. off with the question of how do you identify? And so the question in this moment is, what's the most salient aspect of your identity at work? Oh, and I think this is why I love what I do. Uh, I, I think for me, what's very salient right now is being a therapist of color. Because there's not that many of us, statistically, around the states. Um, there's not that many of us. And there's not, you know, up until this point, there wasn't a lot of us here um, at, at this institution. But I bring that to me with, to work all the time. I think for multiple reasons. One, I'm no longer the only person of color in my, in my department, right? There's now others. And so that's great. And so I bring that because I want to be able to connect and be able to support and be able to just be. But, but for students, for students of color that come to counseling for the very first time, whether it's because they, either if they can see themselves reflected in me, so Asian identifying students, maybe a person who um, we can identify with being othered or feeling like a fish out of water. Like I can connect with students in ways that perhaps others can't. I bring that as much as I can. Um, I think as, a, as an immigrant, as a first gen, I can speak to the experiences um, of the pressure to do well, the pressure to not disappoint your family and bring shame to your family name, especially when we're in the heat of the college process, how much pressure it feels like a do or die, like this is going to be the, the validation of the entire immigration history of my family moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think for me, it really, my identity as a therapist of color um, really is salient for me at my work. For my personal life, and I remember we started out this conversation by how I identify, and I said Taiwanese American. Um, so I'm now married, yeah. um, and I have two children. Now, if you had interviewed me 10 years ago, I would have been like, no kids and no husbands. But wow. here we are. <laughs> yeah. um, and my kids are of mixed race, right? So I, I'm really feeling um, the importance of me representing this side of their lineage and their heritage and their who they are. Yeah. Being sure that I'm doing a good job and not only representing, but educating them about that. And how do you educate them? Uh, by being connected with my family. We have books that are written in Taiwanese, in, in Mandarin. Taiwanese is an oral language, not written. So we speak, I speak Mandarin um, and read right, Mandarin. So reading to them in Mandarin, speaking to them in my Mandarin, uh, my kids can understand and can, can speak when they want to. Um, they're foreign too, so they're still, still learning, but they can understand, no problem. Um, and it's about, you know, the people who, we invite around the dinner table. That sounds so cliche, but it, it's true. And just really, I, I don't want, and particularly because we're now living in Southern New Hampshire, I don't want to be um, the only person of color that they know. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yeah. in some of the neighborhoods that we're surrounded, that, that could be possible. Uh, and, and that I can't have. So um, my hope, is to, well, I've already brought my son to Taiwan. Uh, my hope is post-COVID is to bring my daughter to Taiwan and to be with their family. I mean, we got lots of family. In and Taiwan. how old are they? 
four and four and a half and one is all Emma's almost two. Okay. I remember when you were pregnant with your daughter. Gosh, yeah. And so the final question here is a doozy. Here goes. All right, so your clinical interests revolve around a few things. One of them is identity development. And so for somebody listening to this episode and hearing me ask questions like, what's most salient for you? What are some exercises people can do on their own to try to figure out what's most salient to them? Mm-hmm. And can we add the phrase uh, or the term right now? What is most salient for you right now? Okay. The thing about identity development is that it's very fluid and it can change. Folks think that, you know, it's a stage thing. You develop and you're done. I don't believe that to be the true. I think we're always developing our identity and being touched with some parts and sometimes not the others. It's a, it's a fluid process and you don't have to figure it all out right now. And whatever you figure out right now, you can change your mind. Yeah. Change your mind. It's okay. You know, when I work with young people, there's this pressure to figure it out, this pressure to define, this pressure to understand. And what I try to help them to see is that you can figure out and identify for now, but please also know you can change your mind. I don't know about you, but some of the stuff that I figured out at 18 that I thought was so surely right. Yeah. Gosh, I'm glad I'm so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at 42, you know, now looking back at what some of the things that I thought I had figured out at 18 or 16 or 25, even, I'm glad I gave myself that room to adjust. Um, so some of the exercises, I need to write down, you know, write down the different areas of your life and how you define it, whether it's your race, your ethnicity, your sex, your gender, um, your occupation, or your maybe school. What does it mean? What does it look like? And it doesn't have to be a word. It can be a color. It can be a a picture. It can be a, whatever it may be. So you can touch and feel it. Um, How does this land for you? Can you connect with that? And then what, I challenge people to ask themselves is, are your thoughts and your actions um, and your feelings lined up? Mm. Okay. Sources of pain comes when those three things are not lined up. You think a certain way, but you're acting something way, some other way. Sources of distress or sources of pain and suffering comes when our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors are not aligned. Hmm. I'll give an example. If you believe in health and you want to quit smoking, but you smoke, that's a conflict, yeah. right? That's a dissonance that's going to cause some sort of like, ah, I know I shouldn't and I'll quit next week and blah, 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 right? That's a, that's a source of the stress now. So I, there's, a, there's an African proverb that I love. And again, I credit my mentor for teaching me this. There's three questions. Who am I? Am I who I say I am? Am I who I ought to be? Dropping jewels. I invited you on because I knew you'd have some gems and and you did. And um, folks are going to get to listen to this and get something nourishing for free. Don't even have to pay for this. Um, They don't. I thought I was sending somebody a bill. Wait, hold on. Oh, gosh. Your invitation is payment enough. Your recognition and acknowledgement of just me being a member of the community, I think is, is huge. Thank you. 
in recent years, I've felt this need to almost sometimes prove myself um, because people don't know my story, right? People don't know the, 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 the friendships and the, the, the places that I've, I've been. They don't always know and, and they jump to conclusions. I don't ever feel like I have that vibe with you and I appreciate that. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your show. If you didn't have much of an understanding of identity development, I hope this episode provided you with that. What aspects of your identity are most salient? Is it the same at home and at work? What about around your extended family? Do things change suddenly? Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting.